today's scripture reading is 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 13. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be with you here at FBC Online. Thank you uh, for being a part of our worship service this morning. Again, we know that uh, it's difficult for some to be in person right now, and so we're just glad to be able to connect with you online, and thank you for, for tuning in. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and so wherever you are, however you're tuning in, uh, welcome. I want to invite you to open up uh, your Bible with me to the book of 2 Timothy. It's a short letter in the New Testament written from the Apostle Paul to this young pastor in the city of Ephesus named Timothy. And we've called this series Onward, right? As we're just walking through little by little the letter of 2 Timothy, looking at how do we step out onward into the future, into the next season of life and ministry uh, as we follow Jesus. And so we've been here for six uh, or so weeks, and we're just going to keep on keeping on here in chapter 2, verse 8 is where we'll start. Uh, I'm going to say a short prayer for us, though, as we get ready to jump into the text. Would you join me? Father, we once again thank you for your word, and thank you for the gift of, uh, of worship that we can come and sing to you and pray to you and, and now turn to your word. Uh, thank you that you've made yourself known. You have uh, given us the truth in your word, and so we pray that you just shape us and teach us and guide us and convict us by the power of your spirit as we open up the scriptures. God, we come with humble hearts and seek to, um, to grow and to grow closer to you. So God, would you have uh, your way in our hearts this morning? Uh, we give you this time. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm curious what it is that keeps you motivated as you do hard things. What is it that encourages you, that motivates you to endure and press on when you're doing difficult things? I think about you that, that work out all the time. Uh, those of you that exercise, like how do you push through those hard moments when you don't want to get up early to go and work out or when you're on your run and your, your lungs are burning and you want to quit? What is it that, that keeps you going in those moments? Is it the, I don't know, the physique that you hope to have? Is it the, the overall health and well-being that you're striving for? Uh, is it the good feeling that comes after a workout? They're like, man, if I just press through this difficulty, there will be good things afterwards. What is it that motivates you? Or I think about uh, those of us that are in jobs that maybe we don't love or don't enjoy. It's a grind and difficult at work. Like, how do you press on? What is it that motivates you to carry through your commitment there? Is it uh, the desire for a promotion? You know, if you work hard enough, long enough, get through some of this difficult stuff, maybe you'll receive a prize at the end to be promoted to a different role. Uh, is it maybe just your love for your family? They're like, I just need to keep working because I need a paycheck. I need to pay the bills. So I'm going to endure this difficulty for the sake of my kids and my, uh, my spouse. Or how do you endure when, when parenting is difficult? And the kids 
in the house are pressing every button you have? How do you continue to respond in, in love and in grace and in patience? Is it uh, simply your love for your kids? Is it your desire to not go to prison? I, I don't know. How do you uh, stay motivated uh, to do the things you're supposed to do? You know, we have to ask really the same question about our life as Christians. Right? As we seek to follow Jesus, how do we stay motivated? How do we stay the course? Because we know there are all kinds of challenges and difficulties It requires endurance and devotion. It's not easy following Jesus. How do we stay motivated? This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is going to get at this morning in our text, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Where do we look to find strength on our journey? Look at verse 8 in chapter 2 with me. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. So again, we're, we're picking up kind of mid-chapter here, and if you remember the context where we've been, where we were last week, Paul is calling Timothy to what? To endure suffering, to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel, to live out in full devotion, fully sold out to the cause of Christ like a soldier, like an athlete, like a hard-working farmer. Okay, so it's going to be difficult, he's saying. And in order to, to encourage us, to help us stay motivated and help Timothy stay motivated, he says what in verse 8? Hey, remember Jesus. Which makes us say, okay, great, well, well what about Jesus? And he here mentions two specific things about Jesus that are to motivate us and encourage us to stay the course. First, he says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. So Timothy and and believers everywhere, I want you to remember that Jesus is alive. Remember Jesus. He endured suffering. He was faithful even to the point of death. But death and suffering was not the end of the story for Jesus. Because he rose again. So death and suffering didn't have the last word on his life. He is alive now. And this is good news for us, right? Because through faith, we are united to Christ. Our life is joined to his. We're bound to him. And so if he is alive and ruling and reigning, that we are likewise made alive in him. Death and suffering will not be the last word on our lives. And so we don't have to fear. We can endure because of this hope. The, the second thing, he says, remember Jesus raised from the dead. And then he also says, descended from David. Now, many commentators will look at this text and say, this is kind of a strange thing to mention here. Right? Remember Jesus descended from David. I mean, of all the things you could say about Jesus, like why is this what Paul picked? I mean, you could say, remember Jesus, the one who walked on water. Remember Jesus, uh, the one who flipped over tables in the temple. Remember Jesus who performed miracles and, and healings. And he fed the 5,000. Remember this powerful Jesus. Or remember Jesus, the one who made great wine that one time at that wedding. But instead, he says, remember Jesus descended from David. He mentions Jesus' earthly 
family line. A reference to King David from the Old Testament. Now, normally in the New Testament, when when Jesus is connected to David and said to be a descendant of David or a son of David, it's, it's speaking of his kingship. It's reminding us that Jesus is the king. See, David was this famous king from the Old Testament, and there were these promises in Scripture of a king who would come from the line of David and rule forever, a Messiah, a savior that would come, a son of David, and rule as God's chosen one. And so this is a reminder here that Jesus is that king. Jesus is this descendant of David. Jesus is the one who truly is in charge, the king of kings, the ruler of the universe. He's in charge. And so not any earthly power or earthly leader or or political reality that you may fear. No, Jesus is in charge. And so as we as Christians set out and press onward into the future, as we follow Jesus, enduring hardship, remember Jesus, the risen one, and remember Jesus, the king. He's the one you serve. He's the one you aim to please. And the other point here I'll make with this verse is notice with this that Paul points Timothy away from himself and towards Jesus. And that's the key to staying motivated. That's the key to endurance. That's the key to faithfulness. He, He doesn't say, hey, Timothy, I want you to remember how great you are. I want you to remember how how special you are. I want you to remember that you're stronger than you realize. I want you to remember that you have what it takes. I want you to remember that you are what you need. He doesn't say that. No, what does he say? He says, remember Jesus. So Timothy, you are not the answer. Jesus is the answer and his life and you. So you need to look to him. And it's so important, friends, that we see this. Church, I love you. It's, it's so important that we see this. There are all kinds of authors and books and, and teachings out there today with the label Christian on them. But when you look at what they say and you examine the content, they are not gospel-focused. They are basically straight-up self-promotion and, and self sufficiency, really the opposite of the gospel message. You'll see books or blogs or authors or, or, or popular teachers in like the quote Christian world that really are just pushing a message that say, it's about you. Like you're the hero. You need to be the hero of your own story. You need to just live out your dreams. You have the strength within to endure, to get it all done, to be everything that you want to be. Look at you. Go make it happen. And initially, maybe that sounds good. Kind of strokes our ego. We kind of like to hear that, but it's basically just spiritual junk food. Something that sounds good initially, but it's just garbage. That's not healthy for us. And these messages will basically tell us, hey, like think about the story of David and Goliath. They'll say, well, you're David. You're King David. And God's given you the strength to go uh, conquer your Goliath. So just uh, get to it and go conquer whatever challenge is in front of you. Be strong. But the reality and the irony of that story 
is that we're not supposed to see ourselves as King David there. You're not David. I'm not King David. The point of the David and Goliath story is that Jesus is the true David, the one who has conquered the true Goliath of evil and sin and death. Jesus is the hero. And so the message of the gospel and the message of the scriptures is not, look at you. Friends, we were not designed to be the hero of the story. It's not about you. And and yes, God loves you. Yes, God sees you. Yes, God cherishes you. Yes, God uh, has gifted you. Yes, God has made you in his image and has called you to do good things, to make an impact in this world. Absolutely. But friends, the message of the Bible is not look at you. Ultimately, it's not about us. It's look at him. Look at him. At Jesus. Remember Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. And that is where we will find, friends, true life, true joy, true freedom. So Paul says, Timothy, I want you to remember Jesus and press on. He continues, right? Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So he goes on, he not only points us to the example of Jesus and the victory we have in Jesus, he does that. And so friends, we need to be in our Bibles, again, looking to Jesus regularly, being encouraged by the truth of the gospel. But then he goes on and he actually does point Timothy to his own example, to the example of Paul, right? Verse 9, remember that I, Paul, am suffering as well. I'm suffering for the sake of the gospel, even to the point it says of being chained, right? I'm in prison, because of gospel ministry that I'm doing. And this is significant because remember, he's calling Timothy to what? To endure, to suffer, to face hardship as he follows Jesus. This is no small thing. And so Paul reminds Timothy, hey, I'm not calling you to do something that I am not myself living out. I'm doing the same thing, Timothy. I'm suffering as well. I'm in jail. We're in this together. And this is interesting because, let's be honest, suffering for Jesus today is not something that we're always very acquainted with. You know, suffering for Jesus actually sometimes is more of a, a line in a joke. You know, I, I tell my friends that I have uh, a friend named Scott who's a pastor in Hawaii. And I usually will say something like, yeah, my buddy, uh, he's a pastor in Hawaii, you know, suffering for Jesus. And it's, it's this joke. But for Paul, uh, actual suffering was real. He's in prison for the work of ministry that he's doing. For Timothy, suffering would be real for many believers in the first century and throughout the world today. So it comes with uh, serious consequences. And so Paul's saying, hey, remember Jesus and remember the example that I'm setting in the example of others who have gone before you, who are in it with you as you follow Jesus. And I believe this would be a great encouragement to Timothy saying, join me in this. You're not alone. And similarly, today, friends, we need the example of other believers to keep us motivated, to spur us on, because let's be honest, we all have seasons of doubt. We all have been through or are in uh, seasons where our faith maybe is weak, 
where we are fearful or timid. I've had moments like that in my life, and I know that in those moments, in those places, I've always been so encouraged by the example of of older believers who have stayed the course. I've been encouraged by uh, conversations with my peers who are following Jesus. They've encouraged me. I'm encouraged by hearing stories of, of missionaries in history or throughout the world that are maybe risking their very lives for the sake of Jesus and sharing the gospel. And so when I have those conversations and hear those stories, it, it gives me boldness. It encourages me. It is uh, as if I can maybe like borrow some of their faith in a moment when I need it. And I'm sure you have experienced a similar reality, maybe in your small group, maybe in your family. I think this is what Paul is getting at with Timothy. Like, hey, you're not alone. Look at my example. I'm suffering with you. We're in this together. And this is why, as a church, we we believe so strongly in small groups. And one of our core commitments is, right, worship, connect, grow, and go. So worship and connect. We need to connect with one another. We need fellowship. We need encouragement as we seek to follow Jesus. And so it's my hope that, that you, as you join a small group, you'd study God's word, you'd pray with other believers, and those relationships would be an encouragement to you. You'd get to know people who are in different places in their faith, and that can spur you on as you follow Jesus and face hard things. And it's been such an encouragement. Pastor Lee and I have been talking about the state of you know, small groups in our church, and there's a really high number. Somewhere around 75% of the adults in our church are plugged into a small group. That is, that's incredible. Three out of four, that's, that's a big number. So I'm so encouraged that you have made that commitment, and so many of you are, are consistent in small groups to not only be encouraged, but also be an encouragement to other believers. Now, you notice here, in the text, there's, there's one other layer of motivation that Paul mentions. So he says, remember Jesus. He says, remember Paul's own example. And then verse 10, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So here's this other layer of motivation. Paul says, I endure for the sake of the elect. Timothy, you need to remember the elect, those who are are chosen by God. Now, this uh, is something maybe difficult for us to understand, but in order to grasp what Paul's getting at here, we have to understand uh, something of the doctrine of election. Not speaking of a political presidential election, that sort of election, uh, but election in Scripture. Few uh, who study the Bible would deny that the doctrine of election is in the Bible. It's in Scripture. Uh, but there is some debate as to exactly what that looks like and how election works. So just a base you know, starting point, the doctrine of election we see back as far as the Old Testament uh, used to describe how God chooses people, certain people for certain things. We see that God chose, he makes this very clear, he chose the nation of Israel to be his special covenant people, to belong to him, and he wanted to use them to reach the world. We see that God chooses individuals in the Old Testament at specific times for specific roles or offices. And we see at times in the New Testament that God elects or chooses certain people for salvation, 
and for relationship with him. One of the various texts that kind of speaks to this is found in the book of Acts, chapter 13, verse 48. It says this, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Okay, so there's this group in Antioch here in Acts chapter 13. They hear the gospel, and what? It says, uh, some were appointed, assigned for eternal life, and so they believed. They were appointed, they were elect, they were chosen. Now, the doctrine then of election teaches that before you move towards God, before you choose God and decide to follow Jesus, God has already moved towards you. Okay, the doctrine of election teaches that before you move towards God, God has already moved towards you. We see a similar thing in the book of John, chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus tells his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Now, did his disciples have to make a choice when he said, Follow me? Did they follow? Yes. But he's ultimately saying, hey, you didn't choose me. I'm the one who chose you and called you. Now, I know that this view of election uh, is not without its challenges or its questions. And maybe you're listening and wondering, well, hey, if God chooses those who are saved, I thought God loves everyone. And God, God does love everyone. The scriptures make that clear. So we have to talk about that a bit more. Or we'd say, well, what about free will? I mean, don't our choices matter? I say, well, well, yes, we do have free will. Our decisions do matter, yes. And so again, we, we would have to talk through this and figure out how, how does this view of election jive with these other doctrines and piece together. And we could have that conversation. I would love to talk with you further. We don't have time to go into the depths of that here other than simply affirm that the scriptures teach this. And I want you to be assured that when the doctrine of election comes up in Scripture, it is most often used as an encouragement. Okay? It's not something used to uh, worry you, but used to assure you. Say that you belong to God. Maybe you wonder, how do I know if I'm elect? I want to follow Jesus, but did he chose me? If you desire to follow Jesus and have put your faith in him, that is proof and evidence that God has done this work in your heart. So you don't have to fear, I, I love Jesus, but does Jesus love me? Yes, he loves you. He does. And so the point of election is that, hey, you belong to God. Your salvation is not up to you. Okay, he will sustain you. He will establish you firm. He will carry you through. And I want you to see here, just look in the text with me, how this concept of election is functioning in the mind of Paul. Paul says, hey, he endures hardship and suffering. And Timothy, you should too. And fellow believers, you should too. Why? Verse 10, for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain salvation. Notice that, that's really important, okay? Because sometimes what people will say in objection to the doctrine of election is say, well, if God chooses us and everything is predetermined, and we're all just, it's already predestined who will be saved and who won't, then it doesn't really matter what we do, right? Why have any uh, fervor for missions or for evangelism? Let's just sit back. Why do we have to work? So hard. God's just already decided, is already going to shake out how it will. But notice here, Paul is saying the exact opposite. Right? Isn't that Paul's point? He's saying the doctrine of election doesn't make me passive or sit back or do less evangelism or less missions work or less ministry. No, he says the doctrine of election actually motivates me. 
to endure, to keep on in ministry, to continue sharing the gospel. Why? He's saying, because I want people to what? obtain salvation. I want people to come to know Jesus. And so there's this hope, this confidence that there are people out there who have not yet believed, but they will. There are people out there who have not yet responded to the gospel, but when they hear it, they will. So for the sake of those people, they're like, I need to keep going. We need to keep getting the gospel message out there because there are people that, that God will call to himself. And we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus sharing the gospel. And so we're reminded here of the sovereignty of God. Yes, friends, we work hard. Yes, we, we labor. We endure suffering. We keep going. We share the gospel. And we sleep at night trusting that the results are in God's hands. And he will do his work in the hearts of people. So it motivates us to action. He continues in verse 11. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Okay, so there's more motivation here, right? First says, hey, as you endure, remember Jesus. Hey, remember the example of Paul. I'm in prison too. Hey, remember the elect. Continue to be motivated to action. And and here, remember these truths of the gospel. He starts in verse 11 with this interesting way of speaking. He says, here's a trustworthy or here's a faithful saying. And then he jumps in. There are four other places in the New Testament where Paul does something like this. Where he says, here is a trustworthy saying. And it's all, they're all found in uh, his letters to Timothy and to Titus, the uh, pastoral epistles. And we've got to be honest, it's kind of an interesting way to start, especially in the Bible, right? We're like, this is the Bible we're reading, right? Like, aren't all of these sayings, sayings trustworthy sayings? Like, what about what you just said? Was that not a trustworthy saying? What do you mean? Well, here's a trustworthy saying. It seems like what Paul's doing, though, is he's simply trying to add emphasis. He's trying to highlight that he's making a really significant point. In the same way that we today would say, hey, uh, take this to the bank. Or, or, hey, mark my words. Or, or, hey, I tell you one thing for sure. You know, we, we speak honestly beforehand, but when we say that, it adds emphasis. And so Paul's saying, hey, these sayings, these truths I'm about to share are, are trustworthy. They are in line with the gospel. They are tested and true. Motivators as we follow Jesus. And he says what? If we died with him, we will also live with him. Kind of similar to what we shared earlier about how Jesus is alive now. And so through faith, we're united to Christ. We were crucified with him in death, but now we're what we're born again. We are given new life, both now and forever. And friends, I just want to point out, this is what the imagery of baptism is all about, right? In, in baptism, it's this picture of the Christian life. You go down into the water representing your death, uh, being crucified with Christ, and then you don't stay there, praise God. You come up out of the water representing this new birth, this new life that you now have in Christ. And so if you haven't been baptized 
but have put your faith in Jesus, I would encourage you to get baptized. Jesus tells us to make disciples and to baptize them. It's not really optional. Because baptism is this important step of, of publicly and symbolically showing our identi- identity in Christ. That we identify with him and his work. If you want to talk more about baptism, fill out your connection card, write baptism on there. We'd love to get back with you about that. But so the point is, friends, you have nothing to fear. If we died with him, we will also live with him. We have new life now and forever in Christ. We have nothing to be afraid of. And not only this, but verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So we will live with Christ and somehow we will rule with Christ. We will rule with our king in his kingdom. This is motivation to stay the course, friends, that there is is future glory ahead. There's eternal life and God's kingdom coming that we will live and reign in with Jesus. But you notice in the text in verse 12, there's also a warning. Right? If we disown him, he will disown us. Reminds us of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus himself says, whoever disowns me, I will disown before my father. And so contextually, this is a warning to Timothy, to those in Ephesus, to us today, that, that rejecting Jesus has devastating consequences. Let's be honest, this text has a lot of good news in it, right? Jesus is alive. Jesus is our king. Jesus has saved us. We will live with him. We will reign with him, amen? But the scriptures make clear that there is no way of salvation apart from Jesus, that if we reject him, those things will not be true of us. We will face death and judgment, A.W. Tozer sort of agitates our modern sensibilities when he writes, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. Some of us have lulled ourselves to sleep saying God is too nice or kind to punish or condemn, but friends, the scriptures make it clear if we disown him, he will disown us. Judgment is very real. And this is why we celebrate the good news of Jesus. This is why we celebrate with, with sober minds the fact that we have been rescued. We have been saved from hell, death, punishment for sin through the work of Jesus. This is why we make such a big deal about Jesus. He's rescued us. And so we have to take very seriously this reality. And he closes then in verse 13 with with a word of confidence. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. So after this warning, you see this word of confidence. And Paul seems to envision one who is Maybe faithless is stumbling, but stops short of of full-on apostasy. It says, God remains faithful to us. He remains faithful. He keeps his promises to save sinners, to hold us fast, to restore those who fail. We think of the apostle Peter, who who disowned Jesus, denied he had anything to do with him. And then Peter is restored. 
And so most commentators think as we look at this text, well, some will reject Jesus and walk away completely, and Jesus will disown them on the last day. But others, it says, are, are, are faithless at times, still following Jesus, but doing so imperfectly and stumbling as we go. And so we have this promise here that Jesus remains faithful. Jesus does not change. And that is good news for us this morning. And friends, this is what we remember as, as we come to take communion together, as we're about to do. We take the elements that represent the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and remember that he has been faithful to us. God has kept his promise to save, to redeem, to make a way for us to be forgiven and restored to right relationship with him. And we remember that this is accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So friends, I want to invite you to to grab those elements now. Uh, I'm going to say a short prayer for us, and then we will take the elements in remembrance of Jesus. And friends, this is a a moment that one is is for Christians. This is for anyone who's put their faith in Jesus, who's following him. I invite you to participate with us uh, where you are. And also remember, this is a kind of a, a really sobering time where we remember the weight of our sin That redemption was costly. So let's pray together, confessing our sin and looking to Jesus. Jesus, we acknowledge before you that we are sinners. We have sinned and fallen short. We've been disobedient by leaving things undone that you've called us to and by doing things that we should not have done in breaking your law. And God, I pray that you'd help us feel the weight of that sin, the reality of death and judgment and hell. But God, we praise you that you did not leave us there. You did not leave us in sin and death, but you you came to us, Jesus. You died for us, Jesus. You loved us so much that you stepped in and took our place. You died for us. And so we remember your body and your shed blood this morning that you gave for us, that we might be forgiven and washed and cleansed and restored to a relationship with you. So we remember this morning that that you are faithful and that you are alive. Jesus, thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, once again, we remember you this morning. We celebrate you as our king. Would you give us 
endurance and perseverance. Would you motivate us to stay the course as we look to you? We thank you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you.